1B in chapter 4, page 1049 in our church family Bibles. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives that evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you, and they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Leanne. Uh, if, if you want to keep these pieces of paper with you, um, we'll be looking at this part of the Bible, which has just been printed out from the book of 1 Peter. And uh, also on the right-hand side of the page, you'll see there's a, a couple of notes. That's uh, my map of where I'm hoping to go over the, uh, the next few minutes. Um, I want to dip in right at the middle, though, into verse 7. It says, The end of all things is near. What does he mean? How is the end of all things near? When was this written? 2,000 years ago? Yep. Uh, what did it mean for the end of all things to be near back then? Because you see, when, when the end of something is near, it sharpens the mind, doesn't it? Uh, when you know you've got a limited period of time to go, it clarifies what you need to do in the meantime. Uh, some of you might know I'm a little bit of a rugby tragic and I was watching my favourite team play last night. Uh, and uh, there was the Brumbies from Canberra. They were playing the Waratahs from New South Wales. 
the Brumbies were six points up and there was a minute to go and they had the ball. Uh, the, the end of the game was near. It clarified what they should do. Hang on to it at all costs. Don't kick it away. Don't give it to the opposition. The opposition gets it. They might score and they might win the game. So you hang on to the ball. And guess what? They did. Yes, they did. And I was so happy because the previous week they blew it completely. Um, But you don't want to rise and fall with the ups and downs of your favourite or unfavourite football teams. But there's something about that time being short that clarifies what you need to do. Tax returns are due on a particular date. So you've got to get it all together. Uh, People who are doing serious study, a thesis, or maybe towards a PhD or something, they've got a time frame in which to do it. And it doesn't matter how little or how much work they've done, when you know that date and it's approaching... It clarifies the mind, what you should do. And so when Peter writes to these Christians, they're they're scattered all around the place, and he tells them that the time is near, I take it that what he's doing is he's focusing their mind on how they should live. And if the time was near 2,000 years ago, uh, what's the logic? It's even nearer today. What is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about... The return of Jesus. The return of Jesus is near. It was near back then because God had done everything through Jesus. He he lived, he died, he'd raised from the dead, he'd returned to heaven. There was nothing more that had to happen before he could come back. And so that time was near. It's it's like setting a timer. You don't know exactly when it's going to happen, um, but the timer goes on and it's now in countdown. And it's been in countdown since Jesus returned to the Father. We don't know where it's at on that timeline, but the time is near. And you know what? Jesus could come back before I finished. Jesus could come back tomorrow. He could come back in a week. He could come back next year. In God's purposes, there may be another millennia, but he will come back. And if it's not Jesus coming back to us, you know what it will be? It's us going back to Jesus. See, the reality is that our days are numbered. Our days are short. The time is short. Therefore, how should we live in the light of not having all the time in the world? Well, Peter has a bit to say. And the first thing that he has to say has to do with how we live in relation to those around us, how we live in relation to sin, how we live in the light of the way that Jesus lived. And we pick that up in the first six verses. Um, Have a look down at verse 3. He's talking about what they used to be like. He says, You've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They they lived a pretty debauched life. Their society was, well, in many ways, it's a bit like our society, isn't it? That these are the types of things that people say, yeah, you've got to get into this stuff. This is, this is the way to live. Make the most of it. Live it all up. Do everything that you possibly can. And they say in verse 4 that they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. Now, I've known some people who've, who've been involved in a, in a pretty rough, pretty kind of debauched background and they've become Christians. Uh, one particular friend of mine who, who lived for many years in the rugby community, which, which was hard drinking, it was wild living, it was partying whenever you possibly could, and he became a Christian. 
And so when his mates started to live this way, which they'd always done, and say, come along, come and join us. So no, no, I, I don't live like that anymore. And they'd think it was weird. They'd think it's strange. But why would he then take a stand? Well, come back to verse 1. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. What, what's the attitude of Jesus? What was Jesus' attitude in suffering in his body? Well, read on, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. doesn't mean they won't sin anymore. It means that they've actually, they're done with sin. Sin was a thing of the past. And Jesus had the attitude of being done with sin. What did that look like for Jesus? Well, it meant the sinless one took upon sin himself and he died with it to kill it, to destroy the power, to destroy the penalty of sin. That's what we've read about already in 1 Peter. That's that's what we saw in chapter 3, verse 18. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. In other words, Jesus' death was a sin-bearing death to to kill sin, to, to actually destroy the effect of sin, which leads to God's judgment and to death. And so if that has been done for us, and if that is Jesus' attitude... Then verse 2, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Jesus came to deal with sin. And if your sin has been dealt with, you see how silly it would be to go back to that sin again, to continue in that lifestyle again, because Jesus has paid the price for it to rescue you from the impact of that sin. So don't go running back to it. Let, Let me change. Uh, and illustrate with a different outlook. Um, This is one that's quite close to home for some of us, uh, even for me. Imagine that there is a a cancer growing in the body, which is destructive. It's spreading. It's impacting vital organs, and it's effectively leading to destruction and death. Then if that cancer is destroyed then you wouldn't go running back to the very things that might lead to or promote that cancer again it it would be foolish to do that wouldn't it now i know it's medically it's probably doesn't work all like i've said but you, you get the point don't you if you're rescued from something don't go running back to it and if you come to the lord jesus then you've come to one who dealt with sin So have the same attitude, that is to deal with sin, to get rid of it, to shut it out, not to live just like everybody else around about you, but to be different. And and why? Why does this make sense? I mean, surely it's easier to go with the flow. If everyone's doing such and such, then do such and such, because you'll fit in. But that's a short-sighted perspective. Come down to verse 5 and 6. See, in talking about those who are involved in reckless wild living, he says they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge both the living and the dead. For this is the reason that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, it's a little bit complicated. I think it's saying this. If, if, if you want... Um, a future perspective on why you shouldn't go back to your way of sin, bear in mind that there's going to be a judgment to come. 
And that judgment is something that we will each face. And because of that judgment, that's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was preached to people who've actually lived and died already. So that they might, yes, they might die in the same way that everybody else dies, but but it won't be eternal death for them. It will actually be resurrection to spiritual life. See, if this life is all there is, right? If we're just atoms, um, molecules and what are we? Neutrons, electrons and protons. Is that right? All that sort of stuff. Um, I, I think it's a, a song anyway. Um, Cat Empire, isn't it? Anyway, 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 sorry, my, I just got distracted there for a minute. But if that's all we are, right, if we're, just, if we're just physical kind of atomic reactions going on and then we die and, and our bodies break down and there's nothing else, live however you please. Whatever works, whatever feels good, whatever doesn't put you out of step with those around about you, you may as well fit in the best you can if you're just matter but if you're more than material if you've been made to have a relationship with God if, if God has given you this life and you'll be called to account for this life if you'll be brought to God in judgement one day then it matters how you live and, and we know don't we that we can't lift up ourselves by our bootstraps and improve our lives so that God says oh well done because we won't But if Jesus has paid for our sin, then it makes sense to put our trust in him and not to go back to that way of life. Not to just follow, to go with the flow like everybody else. Well, a militant attitude. I wrote militant there because that's the word in verse 1. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. Have a militant attitude. The same attitude of Jesus which was militant against sin, destroying it. But that's the first thing. So we're called to be different, aren't we, to those around us. And it makes sense in a lot of what Jesus has done. Um, I want to go to the last thing here, because it's a loving attitude towards others. We'll pick it up at verse 8. Above all, he says, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Um, we, We need to understand that carefully, because... He's saying, above all, in the light of things uh, coming to an end, in the light of life being short, then what's the best thing that you can do now? The, the number one thing, the above all thing, it's actually to love people. And you know, when you love people, it overcomes a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean it sweeps them under the carpet. It actually means it overcomes the impact of sin. So our love towards one another Our love towards those both within the church and outside the church, it makes full sense because it has such an impact. Um, And he goes on to say, in a practical way, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, instead of our, our, our lives and our homes being filled with debauchery and selfishness, he says, in the light of Jesus, have your lives filled with love towards one another. Use your homes for hospitality. Um, reach out, be generous, give what you can, take care of each other. The word for hospitality here is literally loving strangers. Loving strangers. So it's, it's welcoming people, it's, it's bringing people into our lives. 
It's caring for one another. That's what he says makes sense in the light of the end. Go on, verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift that you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. This is a really important verse, I think, for us in church. Because he, he doesn't say, one or two of you have got some gifts. Um, and those one or two of you with gifts really ought to use them. Uh, you know, maybe your gift is teaching. Then do some teaching. Maybe it's, it's lugging furniture around. We'll lug some furniture around. Maybe it's, it's music. We'll, we'll play some music. He doesn't say one or two of you. He says each of you. And the Bible's perspective, not just here in, in 1 Peter, but in 1 Corinthians, in Romans, in Hebrews, in other places, is that God gives gifts to his church and that he equips each one of us as members of the body to contribute to the body. Nobody's more important than another. No, nobody is, is irrelevant or inconsequential. Everybody matters. You know, God is giving us gifts. They're, they're grace gifts. They're not earned. They're generously given by God for the purpose of serving others. That's what it says here. But there's something else that it says. As stewards, faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. You know what it means to be a steward? It means to be given something to use uh, for the purposes in which it was given. So if, if God has given gifts to us, then to be a faithful steward of that gift is to use it according to the purpose that God has given it for. And I don't think it's narrowing down in this passage to one or two particular gifts. I, I think it's saying that God gifts us and he gifts within his church in all kinds of ways. Now we see the evidence of that, don't we, in, in, in practical ways, just in the gathering of church, people encouraging one another. God gives the gift of encouragement to, to actually get alongside each other. Ask how the week's been. Ask if there's something that you can pray for. Maybe to share something with those around us. Um, to actually open our homes to each other, to offer a meal, uh, to provide accommodation for people. There's all sorts of practical ways that we can love each other using the gifts that we have. But, but if we think of this as stewarding something that doesn't ultimately belong to us, but, but using something that's been given to us for the purposes with, for which God gave it to us, then I think it ups the ante a little bit, doesn't it? See, if God has given us a certain amount of money, let's just pick money for a minute. Um, for what purpose has he given us that money? That's what we need to work out. Because God is the giver of all things. It's not ours. It's to be used for God's purposes. God has given us all a certain amount of time. Did you know that? I think it's 168 hours a week that he's given to each of us. Um, if your math is quick, you, you can tell me if I'm right or correct me if I'm wrong. Um, why does it seem that we never have enough time, but other people do? you notice that? There's always somebody who's got the time to do things, but it's not you. It's not me. The reason is not that they have more time. The reason is that they're actually stewarding their time in a particular way. We've all got the same amount of 
hours in the week. We all need sleep, we all need exercise. Most of us have got to work um, or study uh, or look after our children. There, there are things that we all need to do. God's given us time to steward that time, to use that time. How are you stewarding your time? How are you stewarding your money? How are you stewarding your talents? How are you taking the opportunities that are before you? See, in the light of the end, and what is that end? That end is that Jesus is returning or we will return to him. And that's true for everybody. That's true for us. That's true for our next door neighbour. That's true for the people that we work with, the people that we play sport with, the people that we surf with, the people that we ride with. That's true for everybody. And, and we're called to live in the light of that. And that means using the things that God has given us, investing them for his purposes. And so we see here that it should focus on God and be empowered by God. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Um, I, I was talking to somebody this afternoon, actually, and I was asking them about a, about a bad experience they told me they'd had in church some years back. And I said, what was that like? She said, well, the, the minister left and uh, the, the new guy came and he preached in the morning and he preached in the afternoon and he didn't open his Bible. And that continued throughout the year. Um, that that just, just gobsmacks me, actually, because I, I don't have enough clever things to say. Um, I, I think it's much easier to open the Bible and say what it says. Um, and that's how God wants us to steward a gift of speaking. See, his words are going to be far better than my words. Um, as you encourage one another. So as Marty led us in prayer, he, he actually shared some of God's words. We need God's words, don't we? Because if we only hear the words of the commentators, of the TV, of the people around about us, we won't offer that encouragement as we should. But God does. And not only should we speak the very words of God, but if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. You see, as we serve one another, we're, we're not to be going out in our own strength, trying to do everything that we possibly can, but remembering that God is the provider. He's the gracious giver. And so relying on God to be at work. And what does that practically look like? Well, I think at its very least, it means prayer. It means saying, God, will you please work through me? It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we, we, we try and work out how does this function? Is it that, um, you know, a little bit like superannuation, you put in a bit and your employer tops it up? Do, do I kind of work for a bit and then God kind of turbo boosts the, the last bit? How does it work? Well, I think the, the Bible's perspective on this is that it's, it's all of you. You do all the work and you thank God for doing all the work. Um, so as you look forward... You think, God, how can I do this? Um, and, and you ask God to help you to do this. And then as you do it, you thank him for being at work. That's how it works. Well, so a, a militant attitude towards sin being different in the light of Jesus. Uh, a humble attitude, uh, sorry, a loving attitude towards one another. Love uh, in practice here and, and using our gifts. 
and also a humble attitude towards God. Look, look at the centre verse again. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert, be of sober mind, so that you may pray. I don't think I'd have written that verse. Uh, because on a psychometric scale, I'm an activist, right? I, I just get in and do things. And, and when I forget God, I, I, I think that prayer is to do nothing and to run around and speak and do and, and, and work hard is, is actually going to be the stuff that achieves an outcome. But if God is the one who brings about lasting change in people's lives, then the, the most sensible, practical, purposeful thing that I can do is to pause and to pray. And you and I can't change ourselves, let alone change others, without the power of God being at work. So let's pray. Let's recognise the importance of prayer. Um, let's be humble before God. The humility that, that wants to speak God's words to people. The humility that relies on God to work through us in serving people. The humility that leads us to ask God to be at work, to pray. That's what it means to pray. It means to actually ask, to ask God to be at work. And if we're all living in the light of a day of judgment, if, if there's a day coming when people will give an account before God, and if there is hope for people on that day, that if they know the Lord Jesus, they can look forward to that day, not in fear, but in, in genuine hope of life for all eternity. And Peter's been talking about that. Then people need to hear that. And so we want to pray that we'll speak and we'll live in such a way that will lead people to ask that question that we looked at two weeks ago. Why do you have that hope? What's the reason for the hope that you have? And so we'll be able to answer them then with gentleness and respect as we point them to Jesus. And we'll go back to chapter 2 where it says, we've been called that we might proclaim the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so we'll talk about the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. Friends, our days are short. Um, some of us have already had our midlife crisis. Um, you know what a midlife crisis is? It's that day that you realise that you're never going to do the things that you thought you were going to do because your time is running out. Some people might hit that at 18. Some people might hit it around 40. Some people might not be smart enough to ever realise that their time is short. I think we need a bit of a, a midlife crisis because we need to realise we don't have all the days and so to use the days that God gives us for his sake. Well, I'm going to pause for a second. Um, uh, the, the, the kids are still being well looked after and uh, just to take an opportunity for a couple of minutes if there are any comments or questions uh, that you might have, I'm happy to dig back into the passage um, or look at other things that might come to mind for you. Any, uh, any comments or questions that you'd like to make?
this is where the person up front thinks, oh, I've been so clear, nobody, nobody's confused about anything, or I've totally blown it. People have actually been drifting with the fairies for the last half an hour and, and they're wondering what I just said. Yeah, oh, sorry, Annette. Uh, okay, so in verse 6, for this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, it's, it's talking there about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, being preached to people who, who have already died. Now, it's not preaching to dead people. It's preaching to live people, but they've since died. And so... Because they've died, you can look at them from a human point of view and say, well, they're, they're dead. You know, they're, Their bodies have decayed. They're gone. But the reality is, because they put their trust in the gospel, then they are now with God uh, in the spiritual realm in relationship with him um, for eternity. So I think it's giving us a gospel perspective uh, that is a, a perspective in the light of the message of Jesus that brings people to spiritual life Um, and because God has done that and he's doing that through the gospel message uh, that's what shapes the way that it makes sense to live God's way and not to go back to the way that led to death yeah these would be people who had the message of Jesus proclaimed to them previously yeah See, it was a bit bit of a puzzle for Christians in the first century, right? People within the generation uh, of Jesus, when they had a hope of resurrection, people um, going on to live forever, but some of them started to die. So they had to... We we don't have that same question because, of course, everybody dies and everyone has died. Um, But in that first generation, when people are being told that if you put your trust in Jesus, then you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. Um, when there's that hope of resurrection and they've seen Jesus raised from the dead, um, it must have been a puzzle for some of them when people died. Uh, And so there's a number of New Testament books, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, even this book to some extent, uh, that says, no, those who've died trusting in Jesus, they still live. They've been raised to life in the spiritual realms. Yeah. All right? Well, let me encourage you to think about how you steward what God has given to you. How you invest your gifts, uh, your, your talents, your abilities, uh, how you steward your possessions, your, your money, your home, uh, how you steward your time, uh, what you make a priority, what you invest in. And to do that in the light of eternity, Jesus returning. Let me pray and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll break and uh, encourage you to stick around and have a cuppa, something to eat. Let's come before God. Our Father, we thank you for the great message of life forever with Jesus. Uh, help us not to forget this, to be so caught up with living this life here and now that we forget uh, that people are facing a day of reckoning, that we'll all die. 
and that you'll call us to account. And so we pray that you'll motivate us to live in the light of that day, that you'll motivate us to be loving towards those around about us, generous with what you've given us, um, and that you'll give us the words uh, to explain to people why we believe what we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um,